All right. Uh, for the sake of time, we're not going to be reading through as much as we normally do before the study, but uh, we will be going through the text and going through the word uh, where Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, who set out to write a wonderful, upbeat letter concerning our common faith, common salvation, uh, he took a different direction and had a little bit of what I would call a festivus, all right? I don't know if you've ever watched Seinfeld, then you know what I'm talking about. Basically, the airing of the grievances, okay? Um, there's this time where he basically tells us how he really feels concerning apostates and false prophets and those who would creep into the church and replace grace for sensuality. And he's going to go into all kinds of descriptions of these men. He's going to remind us from history lessons of what these types of behavior can lead to in the judgment of God. He's going to go through about five examples from nature to illustrate uh, what this behavior is synonymous to. And, uh, and yet in it all, there's, you know, those sections of, of red um, condemnation and consternation towards these certain men, we can't forget the book ends of the book. The beginning where he encourages us who are reading that we are called by the grace of God and by the foreknowledge of God as Christians. We not only past tense are called, but present tense, we are sanctified. And this is in the first verse, called, sanctified. That means we're set apart from this wicked world. We are preserved, which is that future work of God, that he is going to complete that work in us and preserve us. This is a wonderful gospel for us today to go into these grievances knowing who's, here's who we are in Christ Jesus We are those who have mercy, verse 2, peace and love multiplied towards us. And the other bookend would be at at the end, these encouragements of keeping ourselves in the love of God. Keeping us, you know, he's able to keep us from stumbling. Verse 24, he's able to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And so the beginning and the end both just have the wonderful works of God towards us. This calling, this sanctifying, this preserving, this keeping, this presenting us faultless, and we can take refuge and sanctuary in that. And it also keeps us humble because we realize this is a work of God's grace and power in our lives. But as we read about these individuals, these certain creeps that Jude calls them, we don't get haughty and and really start, you know, uh, pointing down at them and lifting ourselves up. We realize the plane that we were on and we're humbled that we don't slip into these behaviors and we pray for those that they be brought out of those miry pits. And so it's been an interesting three-part series so far. Where verse 3 tells us, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. So fight that fight for the faith earnestly. We studied that a few weeks ago. 
And they're to contend because, verse 4, these certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. They're ungodly men. They turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So a lot there in, you know, in this day and age, great application for us to know the word of God, be able to give a defense for it, to go to bat for the word, and even really more truly, just unleash the word of God and unleash the gospel. It's a bulldog. It can defend itself. It is the power of God unto salvation. Just open up your mouth and preach the gospel, right? And so by our, by our preaching of it, we're contending earnestly for the faith. So know the gospel, all right? And preach it. Open your mouth. Tell people about it. Because even today, the same problem as is in Jude's day, you got certain men, they're creeps, they're creeping in to subvert people. They are ungodly men. They are unpious men. They take the beautiful grace of God and they twist it and they pervert it and they turn it into sensuality and licentiousness and immorality. And in that they deny the Lord Jesus. Okay. So those are marks of these apostates. These are marks of these false teachers. And, uh, Dr. Constable from Dallas Theological Seminary was a great help for me this week. It's actually kind of hard to find good writings on the book of Jude, you know. Um, it, it's easy to skip over. It's easy to be like, let's just get to Revelation and all this crazy stuff, you know. And so um, I always I came back to just a good old source that I had at one time from Dr. Constable. Plus, he's got a cool name, you know. He's got like a little monocle and he's like a detective or something. I don't know. I don't think that's true at all. Um, But he writes that the brief epistle of Jude is without parallel in the New Testament for its vehement denunciation of libertines and apostates. All right. So, you know, Jude is just good for just calling it out. And I mentioned a few weeks ago that I have been reading this some 500 page biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer by Eric Metixis. And it is an incredible read. It's only got a couple pages of pictures, which is a total disappointment. That's, I'm on the computer a lot, like looking up images of all that's going on. But um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was uh, not only a guy with a really cool name, but he lived in the early part of the 19th century. He was German and he was a theologian that was beginning to walk with Jesus during that period of time where Nazi socialism began to come in and uh, creep into the, the German nation. And not only this was this on um, governmental and economic fronts, but it was very interesting to read in this book how uh, because of this nationalistic pride that the Germans had that was so humbled and squashed and, and maybe even abused during uh, post-World War I period, uh, the German people were looking for hope and something to kind of build them back up again. And so enter in Adolf Hitler and this socialistic idea that was Nazism. And it really like appealed to the hurting population there in Germany, including the church in Germany. And it's such a tragic thing to read about in this history uh, was that even the, the Lutherans and even the church uh, there in Germany they began to desire this. And, and everyone, you know, just like many of us, we're, we're patriots and we love our country, but that can go too far when uh, our love for our country and our nation trumps the love for God's heart, uh, uh, God's love for all the nations. 
and his heart to redeem the world and, and so on and so forth. And so what Dietrich found himself in was this position of watching um, some, of course, extreme um, pride and racism and, and violence against uh, the Jews and against the gypsies and against uh, mankind. And, uh, and he was in this inner turmoil of what to do. For like a 20-year period, he wrestled and wrote about the ethics of it all and how to apply the gospel to it. And I just, I wanted to share some parts from his book uh, that can show how easily it is for um, the, the church of Jesus to become something of a Reich church, okay? Something that abandons the gospel for the sake of many other um, values that are really counter-Bible and anti-Bible in the place of the Bible. And of course, with that, they take the place of the gospel and God's heart for mankind and the exaltation of Jesus. So uh, I know that that's a lot, but from the book, uh, we read in a certain point the agenda of the Nazi Germans as it was spelled out by Krauss uh, in a certain church meeting. And I'm going to read this out to you and keep in mind the, t- the context of what Jude says can happen if we're not contending earnestly for the faith. It says, in course, crude language, Krauss demanded that the German church must once and for all cast off every hint of Jewishness. The Old Testament would be first with its Jewish money morality and its tales of cattle merchants and pimps. And the New Testament must be revised too and must present a Jesus, quote, corresponding entirely with the demands of national socialism, end quote. This was a Nordic Uberman Jesus. I don't know much, but I think Uberman is something like a Superman Jesus, you know, that maybe doesn't die in the end, you know. Um, And it must no longer present the New Testament an exaggerated emphasis on the crucified Christ. This tenet was defeatist and depressing, which was to say Jewish. Germany needed hope in victory. Krauss also marked the theology of the rabbi Paul with scapegoats and an inferiority complex. And then he marked the symbol of the cross, a ridiculous, debilitating remnant of Judaism, unacceptable to national socialists. The swastika was to replace all crosses and pictures of saints. Furthermore, it was demanded that every German pastor must take an oath of personal allegiance to Hitler. And the Arian paragraph, that demand of the expulsion of every church member of Jewish descent must be heartily accepted by every German church. We're not that far from something like this in our own culture. Okay, there are different things in history that lead up to times like this. We're not that far from where Germany could be. And of course, many of us are kind of in tune with current events and the attitudes towards um, Christians. Uh, Bonhoeffer goes on to say, and I believe that the whole Christendom should pray with us that it will be a resistance unto death and that the people will be found to suffer for it. So in the midst of uh, Nazi socialism coming in and transforming the church into the Reich church, as it was called, 
Um, you have men of integrity, men of conviction, men of the gospel, men of the word, like Dietrich Bonhoeff and Hoffer and Eberhard Berth, hard names to remember exactly, and um, it wasn't anything like that, I'm just making stuff up, shoobity bobby doobies, and uh, great men, um, that really was his name. <laughs> but they would say, hey, man, Jude says to contend earnestly for the faith. For the gospel, don't be spineless in your knowledge of the word of God and your defense of it. Pray with us, he said, that we would be a resistance unto death and that people would be found to suffer for it. The biography goes on to say the church regime ordered me to fly to Berlin and they put for it, uh, put it for me some sort of declaration that I would retain from all ecumenical activity from now on, which I didn't sign. Because, of course, he wouldn't take that oath to Hitler. This sort of thing is disgusting. They'd give anything to get me away from here. And for that reason alone, I am digging in my heels, period. So that's part of the contending earnestly for the faith is within our circles, our spheres of influences, our jobs, when it comes time to stand for the truth of the word of God, that we dig in our heels. We contend earnestly for the faith and we trust the Lord that he is going to order everything as it may, the loss of the job, the, um, the casting out of our community circles, and, and even our own lives and the lives of our families but he is sovereign and able and powerful and able to do so much more in those times of persecution that we could even ask or think. I'm digging in my heels, period. National socialism has brought about the end of the church in Germany and has pursued it single-mindedly. We can be grateful to them. For me, there can be no doubt that this is clearly the reality that we face. And so, so this is a bit of that creeping in that happens. And it, it was incredible in the biography to just read of men who at one time championed truth and the word. And they began to let the leeching take place of their hearts where um, national pride took the place of faithfulness to the word of God. And so uh, that was just a little bit of some... Uh, application and things to watch for, uh, even in our day and age that happened not so long ago. And in the word today, verse five goes on to tell us some examples, uh, from biblical history of old and new apostates. We must ask ourselves, what does God think about our current situation in 2019? And what will God do with it? Verses 5 through 7 of these histories provide the question, uh, the answer to the question with these truths that we should never forget. Now, it's kind of interesting. There's going to be some different histories that are not in chronological order, but we're going to see in a little bit there's a purpose for this. Look in verse 5. But I want to remind you, though, you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, Afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. Okay, so first of all, uh, in this history, of, it is unchronological, but it starts with unbelief. In the stories that are shown to us, they really show us the order of apostasy. And that's why it's out of order in the storyline. 
He starts out here with, um, with the story of the Exodus and the people that came out and those that died in the wilderness. And it, it began with them with unbelief. Pretty soon we're going to see unbelief leads to rebellion against God. Rebellion against God leads to infidelity. And that all kind of culminates in this apostasy that we read of uh, today. And so this first example is the history of the children of Israel and the danger of unbelief. The Lord Jesus, the ESV puts it, saved the people out of the land of Egypt. So interesting that the direct translation is that Jesus was the one, the lamb that was slain to save the people out of Egypt. But then they were destroyed because they did not believe. There's a lesson here for us that we do not trust in the security of a past experience. Those of us who are Christians today, we have wonderful testimonies of what Jesus did to rescue us out of the miry clay and set our feet upon the rock. He put a new song in our heart, as Psalm 40 says, and we're going to sing it out and people are going to hear it and people are going to know it. We've got a great testimony But the temptation is to rest in our testimony and not what God is currently doing in us today. It's not about the past experience. It's about the past, present, and future experience with the Lord. And if anybody had a past experience of salvation being saved out of bondage, it was the children of Israel. Saved by the blood of the Lamb through the waters of the Red Sea, in through the wilderness, the the water from the rock, the manna from heaven. The the victory over the battles against the enemies. And yet when they came to Kadesh Barnea and it was time to enter in, all of a sudden these giants of the land are too big for God. And they blaspheme the Lord with their unbelief. And Jude says, I've got to remind this to you, even though you once knew it. Did you know that the Old Testament is given to us as a reminder 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 6 tells us that these things became our examples. These things became our examples. Well, in what way, Rory? Like, should I really read the book of Numbers? You know, there's a lot of numbers, but there's also a lot that's for us in there. A lot of examples. And I would even submit that the numbers are even for us, but you know. But these are examples To the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them. And as you go on to say in verse 9, nor let us tempt Christ. Verse 10, that was verse 9, nor let us tempt Christ. Forgive me as I just hop. Verse 11, there are examples that we not complain. Verse 11, now all of these things happen to them as examples and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Verse 12, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So this example is given from Jude to his audience from the Old Testament because the Old Testament is examples or are examples for us not to lust after evil things, not to worship idols, not to tempt Christ, not to complain, because God judges against such sin. We've got to remember from those who've gone before us, they are our examples. Constable says preaching is not designed to teach us something new in every sermon, but to put us in remembrance and to call to mind things forgotten. 
Remember today, Calvary Chapel here in Prineville, the danger of unbelief. And you have such a testimony, don't you? Some of you were part of the Jesus movement in the 60s and the 70s. I've shook your hand. That's incredible. Some of you were in the tent. You know, you were, you were, you were at the beach with Chuck Smith watching the hippies and the surfers get baptized. You know the story of Calvary Chapel. It's on epic proportions of the revival that's taken place and the church planting movement. But we don't rest in what God did in our movement in the 70s. We believe the Spirit of God is with us today, working through us today. He's called us out of darkness today. He's given us victory over sin today. He's baptized us with the Spirit today. He's given us gifts to edify the church today. He's given us the boldness of the Spirit so we can preach the gospel in our circles today. There's current work of Christ today. So watch out because as time goes on and things get slow and and your world gets rocked and your world gets, you know, um, lukewarm, you begin to love that and you drift away and you listen to those words of unbelief in your heart. You remember that unbelief is at the heart of all sin. Goes back to the Garden of Eden. The slithery snake, or as my children's Bible that I still read calls it, the sneaky snake in the garden with his little tongue and his beady little eyes going up to Eve saying, did God really say, or is it more of a say or something like Did God really say? I don't know. Did God really say? Well, he said this, and of course in Eve's quoting of God, she, un, or she misquotes him. Did God really say? And every time we are tempted with evil, what is at the root of that temptation? Did God really say one man and one woman for life and he'll judge sexual immorality? Did God really say, it's like so old school and, you know, can't trust it and, you know, can't really trust the word. Did God really say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Did God really say there is no other name among men given under heaven that men must be saved in the name of Jesus? No, I don't did God really say it doesn't really matter what God said. Here's here's what I think because my culture has breathed this into my ears for the last ten or fifteen years, especially the last two or three. Truth is relative. Did God really say? Beware of the danger of unbelief. The book of Hebrews speaks strongly to this, to a group of people who were Jews, became Christians, were persecuted for their new faith in Jesus, and were being ostracized from their communities, kicked out of their synagogues, and, and um, you know, in being put to death. And Hebrews 3.16 says that, again, these it was the people who came out of Egypt, they, having heard, rebelled. For who having heard rebelled, indeed was it not, oh, I'm sorry, did I, I jumped ahead, apologize. Hebrews 3.12, go back just a little bit, says, beware brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. All right, beware, lest there's an evil heart of unbelief. By the way, what kind of a heart is an unbelieving heart? Evil. It departs from the living God. So what do we do instead? Verse 13 of Hebrews 3 says we need to exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. 
That's why we live in gospel community with one another. God has not called any one of us to be an island, okay? He's called us to be a part of a community where we're lifting one another up, we're encouraging one another, we're sharpening one another, and when we begin to speak those little words of unbelief, our brother's right there shoring in that side and saying, no, man, let's go back to the word. Let's see what God has to say about it. Let's see how this fits into the meta narrative of scripture. Let's see how this pertains to the gospel. Let's see how these little thoughts that are trickling in, they're actually gonna ruin the whole, uh, you know, the whole uh, continent, you know, as you go try to be an island on your own. Come back in. Let's stay true to the word of God. And the Hebrews passage goes on to say, you know, how danger unbelief is, how dangerous unbelief is. Hebrews 3.16, for who having heard rebelled, indeed was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And so there's this question, who were the ones that were knocked down in the wilderness because of unbelief? It was those who had that past epic biblical experience, but they didn't keep clinging to to Christ. They let the murmuring, they let the doubting, they let the unbelief come in. And they didn't rebuke it with the truth of God's word as Jesus did when Satan tried to do the same thing to him. Those who got to go into the promised land were those who wholly followed the Lord. And so the issue for us today is this. Are you currently trusting God today? Are you currently resting in his promises Are you currently confessing your sins and repenting of your sins? Are you currently enjoying his grace and glorifying him for his goodness? Are you clinging to the cross of Christ? Are you rejoicing in the empty tomb that as Jesus lives, we live as well? It's been said by John Calvin that all that Christ has done for us is of no value to us if we remain outside of Christ. So come into Christ, even afresh today. So the first example from history were the children of Israel who had a past experience, but they went into unbelief and they perished. In fact, I believe it says that they were destroyed, kind of strong language there, um, because of unbelief. And then verse six, we have another bit of history that was pre-children uh, of Israel. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. Uh, Solomon wrote in the pulpit commentary, it's not too much to say that the New Testament nowhere else presents so many strange phenomenon or raises so many curious questions within so narrow a space. What this means is, as you read about these angels that leave their proper domain, uh, leave their own abode, he's reserved in these chains. And what is he talking about here? A um, couple interpretations. Number one, perhaps he's talking about the unknown fall of angels not recorded in scripture or an unknown fall. Perhaps it's talking about the original fall of Satan that we read about in Isaiah 14. Or what most understand it to speak of is this episode in Genesis where fallen angels come to the earth and have relations 
with the women of the world. And in Genesis chapter 6, you read of that they had offspring uh, through these women. And it was a really strange, freaky-deaky time in the world. And that, that led up to the time of uh, the fall where Noah was used, uh, rather the flood where Noah was used. As it says, he was actually pure in all his generations uh, speaking of a purity, even in his genealogy, to be one who would lead the people through this purging flood. So interesting thing, you can read about it in Genesis chapter 6, where the sons of God um, have relationships with the women of men. But they did not keep their proper domain. They didn't accept God's plan of their life uh, to be in the presence of God, to be ministering uh, to those that God would redeem to be in presence of God, worshiping. But just like Lucifer, they exalted themselves and they fell and they rebelled. And uh, because of that, uh, even currently, they're in chains. So apparently, in all of my reading and all my understanding, these uh, angels that fell, mated with women, are in a place of judgment being reserved and they are chained, unlike the other fallen angels that are the demons that are on the earth. Uh, today. So lots there, no doubt. You're probably scratching your head as everybody is as they're reading it. So, but biblical and true and interesting, that's for sure. But the apostates in Jude's day, similar to ours, similar to the fallen angels in this case, abandoned a position of great privilege and blessing, an opportunity to serve and glorify God for immorality. And it appears that there was this sexual immorality to it as it goes into a comparison in verse seven of Sodom and Gomorrah. You see that word as that comparative statement as Sodom and Gomorrah and verse seven is going to cause us to not only remember the danger of unbelief, not only remember the danger of rebellion, but also the danger of uh, the immorality and the destiny of the immoral. It says in verse 7, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. So it wasn't just Sodom, that city. It wasn't just Gomorrah, that city. It was cities around them in the similar manner to the angels who fell and had sexual relations with uh, the women. Uh, They gave themselves over to sexual immorality. And with that, have gone after strange flesh. They are set forth as an example Suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is referenced more than 20 times in the scripture. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities called Adma and Zeboam. A destruction that was so horrific. There's this perpetual reminder that God gives just condemnation to sin, especially sexual sin. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah were not just known for their sexual sin, but also for their pride and their disregard for the poor. You can read about it in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. You remember when we first hear of Sodom and Gomorrah, that they were in a land that was well watered. They were in a land of abundant blessing. That's where Lot decided to go and to pitch his tent. Uh, to, he, he picked this successful looking area. And yet in it, that success without Uh, putting it in its proper place in honoring God uh, led to all kinds of gross uh, immorality. It says that they gave themselves over and were consumed by sexual immorality. It's an interesting phrase uh, in the Greek, ek porneo, okay? 
Uh, this type of sexual immorality, it speaks to indulge and to engage in sexual immorality. We were reading about sexual immorality from the scriptures with the high school group this week. And we mentioned that this word sexual immorality, porneia, of course we understand, you know, in our day and age, the, the similarities to pornography, a graphic sexual immorality, images, pictures, videos, whatever. Uh, this porneo in the Greek is like a junk drawer term. And I don't know how many of you have junk drawers at your house, but we've got like six of them, you know, and it's just like whatever we can cram in this thing just to get it off the counter, you know, so it looks like we have our house together when company visits, you know, no matter how many times you try to organize that dumb thing, you know, it's still full, you know, but um, anyways, you know, it, it's kind of this junk drawer word uh, because God knows the sinfulness of our heart. You know, where we would be like, well, you can't do that, but you can do this. You know, you can do this, you know, and it's like, sorry, bro, but that all falls into the junk drawer that is sexual immorality. All right. Let's bring it down to the basics. God created them one man, one woman for life, and he desires sex to be enjoyed within that covenant of marriage. He has creator rights over man and over woman. And as creator, he said how it's to be. The Bible says it. That settles it. If you want to throw it in as the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. That's awesome, but it's not based upon your belief. The Bible says it, that settles it, okay? In any way that our minds go, well, what about this or that? Hebrews chapter 13, 4 boils it down to marriage is honorable among all. And the bed is undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And so Jude will show us here God's judgment of eternal fire on those who practice immorality uh, and sexual perversion and do not repent of it. With sexual immorality, which is wicked and bad, Jude adds something to it and that he says that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah have gone after something. So there was this immorality where they were, and they, and they went away from that. And the, the Greek, as I looked it up this week, says they started to do it, and then they went away and indulged in something else. So what was this going at? They're already in immorality. They're already in the junk drawer, you know. And then they went after something else. What is that? It's called here strange flesh. Sarkos. Heteros, different flesh, another flesh. In the Greek lexicon, homosexual intercourse. Those of you that read from the ESV version, it's translated that they pursued unnatural desire. Well, I'm an NIV person. Well, okay, good for you. Sexual immorality and perversion is how the NIV puts it. The New Revised Standard Version, they pursued unnatural lust. Guzik writes, their sin, which was most conspicuously homosexual, but included other sins as well, brought forth God's judgment. So when we read about the condemnation to the apostates that's in the same realm as Sodom and Gomorrah, we want to understand that Sodom and Gomorrah, as Ezekiel tells us, they had iniquity that was full of food. It was abundant in its idleness. 
And neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. That is wickedness. It is wickedness to be blessed and to just get fat and sassy and not to help the people around you. That's wickedness and that's to be condemned. And Ezekiel says that will be judged. Also with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, there was sexual immorality of every kind in the junk drawer that would bring God's just condemnation. And yet, as Guzik puts it, in a most conspicuous way, Sodom and Gomorrah's sin was homosexuality. The Bible is clear on its view of homosexuality, just as it is clear with its view of sexual immorality among heterosexuals. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 20, when describing Sodom and Gomorrah, the end of the verse says that their sin is very grave. The conspicuous sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and surrounding cities was sin, and it was very grave sin. When you read in Genesis chapter 19 about the angels going in to rescue Lot and his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot realizes, I've got to get these angels out of the city square because this city is very sinful. I've got to get them out of here because they're going to see these two men. And so he brings these two angels into his house and the men of Sodom see these two men and they come to tear down the door because they want relations with these men. And Lot would yell out to them, please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. They had this sexual immorality, namely homosexuality, where they were giving themselves over to lust. They were uncontrolled, unbridled. And the angels blinded these men, rescued Lot and his family, and got them out of the city before fire and brimstone rained down. Interesting, you can go to the land of Sodom and Gomorrah to this day and find pieces of brimstone. It's completely desolate desert. I've been down in that area and uh, it has resulted in the Dead Sea 30 times saltier than the ocean. You can float in it because it's so salty. Uh, and so, uh, but not only was there this temporary destruction of fire and brimstone, Jude tells us that the Lord uh, brought, uh, the vengeance at the end of verse seven of eternal fire in Leviticus chapter 18, verse uh, 22 We have given from the moral law of God that you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. A couple chapters later in Leviticus chapter 20 verse 13, it says, if a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. So all sin is, is loathsome, and yet in Scripture we have specific times where there's concentration on what some theologians have said is the epitome of idolatry. It is self-worship in a sexual form called homosexuality. 
and it is an abomination to the Lord. It is loathsome to the Lord. It is disgusting to the Lord. And that's not to say that other sins aren't. There's just specific calling out of this for God's people to live holy lives. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Peter comments on Sodom and Gomorrah and their unrighteousness. And he says that God condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And he delivered righteous Lot, interesting in the New Testament, through the lens of the cross. Lot is seen as righteous. Lot was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. In Matthew, when Jesus talks about homosexuality and heterosexuality, he says, have you not read from the beginning? And so Jesus uses Moses as his authority. He uses the word of God as his authority. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? That's how he made it. That's God's design. And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And in that joining, they shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together in his created design, let not man separate. When you read the book of Romans, so we have the Old Testament. We have the standards from the Old Testament carried on through the New Testament, all the way through the New Testament, it's carried through the Old Testament, carried through the New Testament. That's something that we look for in our Bible interpretation. Were there times in the Bible where other instances of the law and commandments were said, okay, this time's done, this time's over, or the age of grace or the gospel or the blood of Jesus does not require these other parts of the law to be done, or this is limited to that culture. We study Bible interpretation. We can say regarding homosexuality or sexual immorality, these are things that continue all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the lips of Jesus, all the way through the epistles, all the way to the time of judgment in the book of Revelation. There's never any point where God relents on his desire for sexual purity and holiness among the world, among his creation. And so in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And I'll just paraphrase for a second. So what Romans 1 goes on to say is that what we know is true about God, we suppress that truth down. And instead of worshiping God and saying, you're right and you're true, we let unbelief creep in and say, I don't really know that what you said is really true. And I'm going to kind of come up with all sorts of excuses of why it wouldn't be. And I'm going to suppress that truth. And I'm going to begin to not worship you anymore, but maybe my own making of you. I'm going to begin to worship um, uh, my own way of doing things. And that's what leads to a whole list of heinous sins that are given to us in the book of Romans. Because of that, verse 21 says, because although they knew God, this is Romans 1 21, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. But you see, so they should have been worshiping, thankful, glorifying as God, but they became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be so wise, they became fools. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like corruptible man and birds and forfeited animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves. 
who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Now listen to this. For even their women exchanged the natural use for that which is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being fulfilled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. So... In Romans, in this treatise against idolatry, idolatry will always lead to, unbelief will always lead to, rebellion will always lead to a debased mind that pursues the lust of its flesh. And for some, that's heterosexual sin. And for some, that's homosexual sin. And for some, that's disobedience to parents. And for some, that's gossiping and being a whisperer and a backbiter. It'll all be condemned. But make make no mistake, in this list of sins, there is one sin that is given that says this is kind of the epitome of idolatry. It is self-worship. And there's a great warning at the end of chapter 1 where it says, these people know the righteous judgment of God. We've read of Sodom and Gomorrah. That those who practice such such things are deserving of death. And listen how chapter 1 ends. They not only do the same, but they approve of those who practice it. What a call to us to be the Dietrich Bonhoeffers of our day, who say there is a God. He is holy. He is true. He has revealed himself to us, his righteous standards. And though we could never keep them, and he came and kept them for us, we let his obedience wash away our sins We let his baptism with the Holy Spirit empower us to now live a life that's obedient. And we say no to all manner of ungodliness. And we very lovingly, very humbly, very reasonably disagree with those who practice such things. Romans 1, using phrases like uncleanness, Lusts of the heart, dishonoring bodies among selves, vile passions against nature, burning lust, shameful error, debased mind, not fitting. These are descriptions of the homosexual practice. Now the beautiful thing is while we have been all found to be under sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9 says, Don't you know that these unrighteous people, those that are under sin, will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is bad news. If you're a sinner here today, which I'm one, I don't know if you know that, maybe you are too, I don't know. Don't be deceived, Paul says right here, and what do you think, that that lie wants to come along and deceive you? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's the junk drawer term, right? Any kind of sin, sexual sin outside of marriage. Nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. Nearly the same thing as homosexuality. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, 
nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. That's the bad news. If you're a sinner, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Are you ready for the good news? (laughs) And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Oh man, does being a homosexual send you to to hell? Does being a heterosexual send you to hell? Does being a sinner who is self-righteous and will not humble himself before God for his gracious provision and sacrificial substitutionary atonement for our sin, namely that he has died so we wouldn't have to, he has shed his blood so we wouldn't have to, and his blood is sufficient to wash away our sins, to wipe away our sins, and he gives us a new heart and a new mind so that we can live for him together forever. Anyone that will not receive that, their sin of pride sends them to hell. Their sin of greediness sends them to hell. Their sin of self-righteous religiosity sends them to hell. Their sin of disobedience to their parents sends them to hell. Their sin of homosexuality sends them to hell. Their sin of unrepentant heterosexual sexual immorality sends them to hell. Turn to the Lord Jesus today. Be washed in his mercy. Be cleansed in your mind and in your heart. Be set apart from this world and the way they do things. And be brought into the presence of God and let him change your heart and change your mind so you can live for him in purity. We'll have the worship team come back up. And as they do, can I share a little more from Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Just a little, just a... He, was, he came to the United States two times. And uh, the first time he toured the United States, he went down to Mexico, did a road trip. It was miserable. Um, second time, he actually came to escape the Nazis, and it was arranged that he could stay in the United States, and the whole time over on the boat, and his whole time in the United States, he had to get back. He had to get back to Germany so that he could suffer with his people, so that he could minister to them after it was all over, okay? So while he was here, he, he was in New York, this is the second time, and it was, the, it was a Sunday, and he went to Riverside Church in New York City, still a church today. And uh, he said, man, I can't be in New York City and not go to uh, what was already being known to be um, a uh, compromised church, okay? And he said uh, Riverside was the church Rockefeller had built for uh, Henry Ernest Fosdick, which had opened to such fanfare in 1930. In 1939, Fosdick was the most famous liberal preacher in America, and Riverside was... America's premier pulpit of theological liberalism. Bonhoeffer uh, was in a mood. Sorry, I took screenshots and then I brought that over. uh, To be where the preaching of the word of God was, um, even if it was not in the precise form that he desired. But it goes on to say, but he was in no mood for what he heard that morning at Riverside. The text for the sermon was from James, but not from the James of the New Testament. It was from the American philosopher William James, whose works Bonhoeffer had studied nine years earlier. The unusually exceedingly gracious and tolerant Bonhoeffer had been searching for something of God, but he had come to the wrong place. In his diary, he wrote, 
quite unbearable. The empty preaching set him off and he poured out his disgust to his diary. He writes, the whole thing was a despicable, self-indulgent, self-satisfying religious celebration. This sort of idolatrous religion stirs up the flesh, which is accustomed to being kept in check by the word of God. Such sermons make for libertinism, egotism, and indifference. Do people not know that one can get on as well, even better, without religion? Perhaps the Anglo-Saxons are really more religious than we are, but they are certainly not more Christian, at least, if they still have sermons like that. I have no doubt at all that one day the storm will blow with full force on this religious handout. If God himself is still anywhere on the scene, the tasks for a real theologian over here are immeasurable, but only an American himself can shift all this rubbish. And up till now, there do not seem to be any about. goes on to say, uh, the next Sunday he went to a different church. It says, the preacher at this church, Dr. McComb, was reviled as a fundamentalist by Fosdick, who was the liberal preacher across the street. And, uh, but what Bonhoeffer found there thrilled him. Now the day has had a good ending, he writes in his diary. I went to church again. As long as there are lonely Christians, there will always be church services. It is a great help after a couple of quite lonely days to go into church and there pray together, sing together, listen together. The sermon was astonishing. It was Broadway Presbyterian Church, Dr. McComb, on our likeness with Christ. A completely biblical sermon. The sections of we are blameless like Christ or we are tempted like Christ were particularly good. He goes on to say, here in this fundamentalist Presbyterian church on Broadway, he heard God's word preached. Goes on to say, referring to Macomb's church, he declared, this will one day be a center of resistance when Riverside Church has long since become a temple of Baal. I was glad about this sermon. So if you know me, I I read these books and these histories and then I go look up So I'm like, oh, Riverside Church, is that still a church today? Oh, it's still a church today. Oh, oh, uh, Broadway Presbyterian Church, is this still a church today? Oh, oh, I wonder what their history is. I wonder if they're still walking hand in hand with the word of God and if they're still walking in and oh, oh no, this is not good. Oh no, oh no. And in their history on their website, they write about the season that Bonhoeffer does where they were known as the fundamentalist modernists. They were part of that modernist fundamental or they were part of the fundamentals sticking to the word of God saying that our former pastor Buchanan drew a very hard line continuing the tradition of disputes with neighboring organizations Dr. Buchanan stirred up charges against the Reverend Dr. Harry Emerson Fosdick then the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church at Fifth Avenue on 12th Street Fosdick who preached against the so-called fundamentalist was effectively forced to resign By the General Assembly, the Rockefeller family would support Fosdick, however, building the Riverside Church to become the new pulpit uptown, only blocks from his one-time antagonist, okay? Goes on to say, on through the 1960s, Broadway maintained a more conservative point of view. During the demonstrations of 1968, we opened our doors to the Columbia University community, which we talked about two weeks ago, left the word of God and became um, progressive in its ideas abandoning biblical authority and a season of transformation began 
their church uh, history says on their website. In 1974, Broadway called its first female clergy person the Reverend Abigail, Abigail Evans. The Reverend Carl Rosenblum became pastor in 1983 and helped to guide the church into a season of growth and energy. In 1994, Rosenblum came out of the closet as a self-affirming gay man. The church was shaken as some members were deeply troubled by this news and chose to leave the church. Others supported the pastor. The session or the council of church leaders voted to affirm his pastor at the time, but by 1998, the time came to seek a new pastor. The church entered an interim season. In 2000, Reverend Walter Tennyson was called. Tennyson helped guide the church forward, continuing to deepen its sense of progressive engagement with theology and the world. Goes on to say, in May of 2011, the church voted to call Reverend Chris Shelton as its 14th pastor. Today, after such an extraordinary history, BBC is a progressive community that welcomes all people, regardless of ethnic heritage, national origin, age, gender, marital status, sexual orientation, or socioeconomic standing. Though we may read the Bible with different eyes than our ancestors, we continue to believe that it is the foundation of our faith, guided by the Spirit, our encounter with uh, scripture calls us to be people of justice, loving kindness, humility, and joy in all that we do. We are part of the church reformed, always reforming. And so many of you have red flags that go off as you hear that, red buzzers. Many of you maybe don't. And I would just say, man, we are open to these individuals as well here as a fundamentalist Bible-believing church. Come, men, women, whatever your orientation, come. Hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Find hope in him. Come and believe the word of God. Say amen to it. Come and be loved. And together we will let the Holy Spirit transform us to be in line with the scripture. Because he's the creator. He's got creator rights. He knows how we can best function together as a community. And it is yes and amen in his word. Amen.